The Lord be with you. So uh, we have microphone technology and everything seems, the lights are all working, everything's on, but it's not actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. So bear with me. I, well, the problem is I'll be, my, my voice is going to be gone by the, it's the, it's the collect of the day in the old, in the late service. I'm always like trying to sing it at my, I'm like, ah. <laughs> anyway, let's begin with prayer, which I'm going to read uh, for our prayer. I'm going to read the hymn of the day, which we sang uh, before the sermon. Beautiful prayer that we sing. Let us pray. O Christ, our true and only light, enlighten those who sit in night. Let those afar now hear your voice and in your fold with us rejoice. Fill with the radiance of your grace the souls now lost in error's maze. Enlighten those whose inmost minds some dark delusion haunts and blinds. O gently call those gone astray that they may find the saving way. Let every conscience sore oppressed and you find peace and heavenly rest. Shine on the darkened and the cold. Recall the wanderers to your fold. Unite all those who walk apart. Confirm the weak and doubting heart. That they with us may evermore such grace with wondering thanks adore. And endless praise to you be given by all your church and earth and heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beautiful prayer for those outside the church, for the lost. Um, and, and with Epiphany, what's the... What's one of the, what, the, one of the general themes of the season of Epiphany is, so the light that shines, so that generally speaking, we have the light, so we have the Magi, the star that guides the, the wise men to Jesus, um, and, and the whole word, the word Epiphany comes from the Greek, Epiphanos, to reveal, to manifest, or make known. So the season of Epiphany is making known Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, um, in a variety of ways. So like in today's gospel lesson, we've got Jesus uh, who takes up the Isaiah scroll and says uh, all these prophecies from Isaiah are fulfilled today in your hearing. So he's fulfilling the voice of the prophet. But I didn't get a chance to preach on this. But the second half of today's gospel lesson is Jesus, like everybody was excited to hear Jesus. We actually talked about this in our Luke Bible study in here. Um, all the people there gathered were pumped to hear Jesus say all these great things. But then he goes on to talk about how the, the Gentiles have been so favored in the Old Testament. Naaman, Naaman uh, the leper, he's not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. And yet he was the one who was cured of his leprosy. Uh, so too the widow um, at Zarephath, she was a, non, she was a Gentile. And she's the one who's not everybody else. Only her is favored by Elisha. Not Elisha, yeah, Elijah. Uh, so he gave those two examples. Did you catch, if you had a chance, if you're in the early service or if you remember this text, it's bizarre. Like Jesus read it, he, he goes to church, he does the reading. Then he, he sits down, which for them the posture would have been a teaching posture. He sat down to teach and he says, today the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. And they liked, they, they marveled at his teaching, they liked it. And then as he was teaching, he basically was saying how all the Gentiles are rightful heirs of this message too. And that's when they do what? They, yeah, it's like really, really ticked. And they're, but if you're not aware of this, it's like, I don't understand. All he did was say some cool stuff happened in the Old Testament. And now you want to throw me off a cliff? What happened here? Well, that's, yeah, it's the message. And this is the greater theme of Epiphany. 
The message that the gospel is for the world, a light to the nations, which would be the Gentile. That same word for Gentiles is, is, is also translated nations. So non-Israelite people are brought into this promise from the Old Testament. Um, and it was also true in the Old Testament that to be an Israelite is not something you're born into because that would be genetic. As we find, especially in Paul later on, uh, what, makes a, what makes an Israelite is faith in the Messiah, which all people can have, regardless of their, what, their, what nation they're born into, right? Uh, so that's this ongoing message in the season of Epiphany is this light that we enjoy as Christians being brought into the world. Those who are, as, as the song, I mean, it's some great imagery here, but... Uh, the souls lost in error's maze. Enlighten those whose inmost minds some dark delusion haunts and blinds. And get that picture. Like, is that not, that's like what happens in college <laughs> for like all of everyone, uh, especially today. The kids, they go to college and, and what they're trying to do is drop them into a maze of dark delusion that haunts and blinds. Blinds from truth. We would call it biblical truth or reality, but it's kind of stripped. Uh, it, it drops a person away from the Lord's ordering of things and away from the Lord's clarity of good and evil, right and wrong. What is the good life? What is true salvation? And it confuses it. It mucks the whole thing up. And so you get trapped in it and you can't see out of it. So it's like, this is like our conversation with so many uh, non, even within Christianity, unfortunately, but non-believers non or non-practicing Christians who have been sucked into today's philosophy, it's, they can't even see how it's so messed up. So you go down, t take that up into like transgenderism or critical race theory. Those are the big, easy ones to pick on. But that's, that's being lost in these mazes of dark delusion that haunts and bl blinds from truth. And so that's what this prayer is. So not only those who are like just outside of the faith, they haven't heard the gospel or whatever, but also those who have, they have heard the gospel and they've walked away from it. There's more, more imagery in here of the prodigals who have walked apart from the Lord's gospel and are, and are now trapped in some kind of darkness. So this, the gospel impact, it brings this light that shatters the darkness, which gets at our theme for today. It's accidental transition perfectly there. So I wanted you to have a sermon report, these blue sheets. Today, uh, if, if you don't want these, I, I just made a bunch of extra copies because we actually use these for the youth. So uh, if you don't want to keep it, you don't want to throw it away, just put it back on the table. We'll reuse it for the, for the youth. So we asked the youth to do these sermon reports, and there's a reason for that. There's a, and there's a value there that, that really everybody's supposed to kind of be listening for, when you're listening for a sermon because there's a point of the sermon. Not just an individual sermon should have a point. That's true. But I mean, the goal of the sermon activity. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Uh, and it gets, to, it gets to law and gospel with uh, what is the purpose of law and gospel and such. But the first question there on your, um, on your handout not the blue one, the other one. We'll come back to the handout if time allows, which it won't. What's the purpose of the sermon? What's the purpose of preaching in the Lord's church? 
So instead of asking you what you think, because you don't want to be wrong, what do you think other people think? <laughs> Sermons are about. What's the point? What's the goal? Not the, what's the goal of a sermon? What's a pastor trying to say? I'm going to accomplish this. Aaron done well? So, so, they, so, the, so I want to use law and gospel toward what, so Aaron said law and gospel. Um, yes, especially from the Lutheran answer, I want, to, I want to utilize law and gospel, but toward what end? Yes. To give some comfort. To give some comfort. So to both, so she said to give some comfort where the, where the need for comfort is. And that's certainly true. Um, and I really, I mean, it's one of the main purposes and the confessions really hammer on this, that that's the, one of the main per points of the Christian church is to comfort terrified consciences. Luther is all about that. At the same time, they're going to terrify the conscience. So it, it, it brings both the reality of the despair uh, the, in which, to be, to be fair, what's the one time when there's a sermons in church, we usually take up a text and we try to preach law and gospel and we want to expose the great need for comfort, you expose the problem, and then you bring comfort to the problem. But what's the one time that you never really have to preach about the problem? When there's a casket. A casket. The, the law is staring you in the face. So we don't have to preach about the reality of death. It's, it's there. It's unavoidable. So now we're comforting souls that are terrified by death for ourselves and for our loved ones. But usually when there's not a casket there, we're actually, there's any number of things that, that, are, that are drifting us away from our Lord as we're, we're drawn toward idolatry and, and various different sins. And, and so the Lord's hitting us with the law. Okay, so I want to talk more about that. But yeah, I want to hear more about like what you think other people might, what else is going on in the sermon? Yeah. About providing, context. providing context for? Very good. So I can, so to, he said to provide context for the reading. So um, that's one of the hardest things you have like, you have the three readings that are there, they're there that day. And so we've got the Old Testament, which has its unique context. And the Old Testament lesson is always picked to match what? The gospel lesson. The gospel drives the theme of the day. And so really, um, we're working our way right now through the gospel of Luke. And so that sets the theme. And then the Old Testament matches it typically. And the epistle lesson, which I preached on today, is usually disconnected. Usually we're we're working through an epistle one chunk at a time. So it's not a necessary, like today, it's not as clear of a connection to the gospel. But that's okay. We have to pick some kind of rationale for how we're going to work through the scripture and the lectionary. I don't want to go down the, the, the road of what the lectionary is for, but I've got three readings. Some are connected, some are not. There's a general theme behind these. And I can, one, one move of a preacher would be to say, what's the theme of all these readings and unfold it for the people? What's happening here and why? Um, but even that is a step toward what we want to actually do and hear. 
what, so these questions that the UPhD physicists and uh, engineers are thinking about, what, I wonder why, so all the details in the text. We could do that from the sermon. What would happen to everybody? They fall asleep, which they do anyway. So <laughs> constant trying to not have people fall asleep, but we, we want to give the context for the readings, sure. So to teach about what's happening in the Bible, right? What else? What else? What might people think? Yeah. Very good. So it's not just some details about what happened at, to the widow in Zarephath in the Old Testament and, or, or the context in which Paul was preaching 1 Corinthians and leave it there, but actually now, what does that mean for us today? And in fact, in today's Old Testament lesson, if you catch it, Ezra stands up to read the text and notice the people all stand up. I, I had a half sermon written on that idea and then it gets boring quick. I was like, eh. um, people are standing up in reference to the... That's right. They had to stand up to fall down. It made more effective fall. But no, so Ezra stands up and he reads it, but then he actually gave the, gave the sense of the text. So like that's the preaching task is what's, what's the sense? What's the point? What's the, yeah, what's going on in the text? Or as the New Testament church, Acts 2, the people were meeting together uh, to hear the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship and prayer. The apostles teaching is unfolding what's happening in the scriptures. Uh, what else? There's a hand over here. What else might the sermon be? Same point. Application of the scriptures to today. Good. Now, yeah. Say it one more time. So to reflect upon, to chew, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the, the reading. So... It, the idea that you take it home and you'd be pondering on an idea, good. And all these, all these are good and true. Yes. Yeah, so that gets at that. Uh, she said to convict us of our sin and, and drive us to Jesus. So to expose the problem, the sin as the problem in some unique way, according to the text that day. And but not just expose the sin, but also uh, bring Jesus in as a solution to that sin. Um, yeah, good. Um, now what, have you, have you ever been to your, you're like cousin Joey? Have you ever been to their church, the, the church of what's happening now? And um, have experienced a different worship environment? I'm gonna talk in non-Lutheran. What is, the, what is the bulk of the clock? What's, what's being done most of the time in a worship service? What takes the most time? The sermon. Lasts about 45 minutes. And you've got like a build up to the sermon and then kind of like some afterward, but really the sermon is the main thing. And that's not bad. I don't want to tear away at that because we could certainly do that, but it, I mean... All I had to do is sit with Mandy in the pew for like one Sunday juggling the kids. I'm like, okay, we can't preach for 45 minutes. It's unrealistic. <laughs> Which is why, by the way, in those church bodies, where the kids go during the sermon, or really during the service, out, where they can have fun. 
Because we want, so then they learn, when going to church means fun for me, and as they get old, that never changes, and so we need to change worship to be fun for me, you see? So we teach our kids the wrong way to understand Sunday, and why we're surprised when they grow up and want to change Sunday, anyway. Uh, so the goal of the sermon is, in those contexts, a very good Bible study of teaching, teaching what's going on in the Bible. What's the, what, let's do a Bible study working through Ephesians. Again, it's not bad to have a Bible study. And you certainly need more time, like we have here. I mean, today we're kind of talking about the Bible more than talking specifically about a particular Bible text. But like when we were studying Luke, we'd sit down in here, open up the Bible to Luke 1 and just plug away, right? They, you could do that in church for 45 minutes to an hour. And what I'm trying to accomplish in you is primarily intellectual. So understand to grasp it, right? To understand it in my mind so that by understanding it in my mind, I might be able to live better. So teach me how to be a better dad. Is that, is that bad? No, but how, does I, how do I get at teaching someone to be a better dad? What do I have to do to show somebody how to get better? I have to use the law. Yeah, so that, so that ultimately, ultimately t typically the goal, if I'm, trying to, if I'm trying to make you a better person outwardly, I'm going to end up accidentally focusing on the law and trying to give you more standards or, or rules to live by. And that's, again, that's not bad, but it's not the unique it's not the unique voice of the pulpit. It's not the point of the sermon. So like, it's helpful to teach this, especially to adults. We're trying to instill it in the youth. But as adults, you'll come to church. And so you want, you want to be fed academically sometimes. I want to learn more about stuff. But that's not the primary goal. That sometimes happens as a side effect. But the main thing that's that's trying, what the pastor is trying to accomplish from the pulpit has to do with our starting point. That's the next line on your handout. Our starting point is our condition that we've walked in the church in is the Latin simul justus et peccator, which is a battle cry of the Reformation. It means what? simultaneously saint and sinner, so that there's a reality within me that I am, well, I'm a sinner because of why? Not only, do I, not only do I do sin, but I have a sinful nature. That is, I was conceived in sin, Psalm 51.5, and really, I've, I, it's like a bad tree was planted, and therefore it's, it's, it's now bearing bad fruit. I'm a sinner who does sin. So, I, and as long as I'm in my flesh, I'm going to be a sinner. Which is why we can say, I can say of you that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are God's child. And yet, there will be a day, unless Jesus comes back before, that you will be in the, you'll be in the casket. You'll be dead, you will die. Which only happens to what kind of person? The wages of sin is death, right? So I only die because I have sin. 
So even though on the one hand, I've got all these promises spoken of me by God of, of what he calls me as holy and righteous and justified, declared righteous, I'm also in my sinful flesh. The Catechism talks about this as the old Adam and the new Adam, this, this, this daily struggle that the Romans 7 hashes out. Now, Romans 7 comes right after Romans 6. Romans 6 <laughs> is the, the famous Romans section that talks about being baptized into Christ. So we're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. We're joined to him. So just as we are baptized into Christ's death, we're also baptized in his resurrection. Just as we died with him, we shall also live with him. Every funeral starts by reading Romans 6. It's beautiful. Now, just after we've said all these promises of being baptized in the death and resurrection of Christ in Romans 6, where our sins washed away, then we get into Romans 7, which is like, okay, I've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. A, a new man arises, and I'm, I'm a Christian self. And yet, doggone it, I keep doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. And half the time, I want to do the bad stuff. I know I should be doing not, I should be doing good stuff, and yet I keep doing bad stuff. And yet sometimes I fight against the bad stuff, and I do the good stuff. That's this tension in the Christian life that Paul's unfolding in Romans 7, the, the chunk here. I'll read for it. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do, that I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's this, there's this tension going on that's often portrayed, we've talked about it before in like the Disney cartoons by the, the angel, Mickey Mouse on one shoulder and the, the devil, Mickey Mouse on the other shoulder. But the problem with that is it actually, it's, it speaks to the human as this, as a, as a free agent who's being influenced by two different voices. That's not what Paul's getting at. Where's the problem? It's not outside on the shoulders, it is you. The full you is simultaneously drawn one way, drawn the other. Sinner and saint at the same time. And that is why the, the, the worship service, to put it that, I hate that language, the, the divine service, church, it begins the same boring, redundant way of how? Confessing, Confessing my sin. That is not... What happens if I'm trying to like get you all excited to do something? To, if I'm trying to, to design a service 
to manipulate your emotions so that you're excited for some purpose. I'm not going to do it by starting off confessing sin. And yet, it's the joy of being Lutheran. Whether or not I'm excited, it doesn't Do I have sin or not? So as long as the sins, we're just on it, we're calling a thing what it is. So we start off the bat forgiving our sins because yet while we are, while we are covered in the name of Jesus and, and holy in him and trying to live the good Christian life, in fact, it's, it's our own Christian car, Christian self that wanted to go to church. And yet at the same time, we have a, our sinful self that doesn't, and yet we're fighting against it and getting to church Bring, trying to bring our family to church, right? And we come in and we just confess our full sin. Not only the sin that I've done, but the sin that I, the good that I haven't done, the good that I should have done and haven't done. I mean, think about the, the words that we say week after week. And that's, I mean, the downside, the, the advantage of saying it all the time is that you learn it. The downside is you stop thinking about it, right? Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. That's not just that I have done sins, but that I am to the core sinful. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. So just because you haven't sinned outwardly doesn't mean, doesn't mean you haven't sinned in your thoughts and what your words have said. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. This is like, in, the, in our confession, we are just like chopping down every possible way out. So not, not only have I have I sinned against my neighbor? And you're sitting there, but well, you know what? I'm I, I pretty good this week because I was in quarantine or whatever. <laughs> and and if, you're, if you're with your family in quarantine, your sin is higher than normal. But if you're totally by yourself, so the, the idea is if I haven't actually loved my neighbor, see the law, is, the law is calling you not only to, well, I had the conversation with you guys. If you try to help, like the law is calling me to love my, the homeless guy. Have I satisfied the law by helping the homeless guy? Because there's always another homeless guy. Does that mean we shouldn't help the homeless guy? Of course not. But the point is you're not going to fulfill the law by doing this one thing. So there's always sin to confess. There's always more to be done. And when, and when, the, when Jesus is having the conversation with, with the rich guy who thinks he's kept the law, what does Jesus do? Go oh, yeah? Go sell, Go sell your stuff and give it to the poor. And then and come follow me. Walk away from everything. So Jesus always raises the bar when you think you can reach up and grab it. And the Pharisees are teaching people how to jump higher or how to, he's trying to lower the bar to make it a grabbable thing. Jesus isn't work like, Jesus is after condemning us making it an impossible feat. And that's the point of the law. So we, we're, we're, we're coming before God, confessing the sins that we are, the sinner that we are, and the sins that we do, and the sin, the good stuff that I didn't do, that I should have done. It's just like, well, wow, this whole thing's a mess. And just throw ourselves at the mercy of God. All right. So that's, as the, as the symbol, the life as the saint and sinner, I'm coming before God, confessing my sin, and yet, I'm also, even as I'm uttering the words that there's nothing good in me, I'm a total sinner, I'm also a Christian. Baptized into Christ, joined to his resurrection. The gifts of heaven belong to me now. 
I want to love and serve my neighbor freely, not because the law told me to do it, but because I actually love Jesus and I love my neighbor. Those two are stuck at the same time in me. There's this tension going on. And the sermon then takes, has that in mind, that the people who are sitting here in, in front of me are not simply Christians that, okay, I've heard the gospel. I've, I've, to, use our, to use the language of our Baptist friends, I've, I've made a decision for Christ. I've accepted him into my heart. I've dedicated my life to him. And now I want to be taught to be a better Christian. So here we are, I come to church, and I want to learn how to be better. Well, there's one major flaw with that, because who are you looking to to tell you to be a better Christian? Me. And yes, what do I bring to the table? We wear black for a reason. First of all, laziness, and it's slimming. But the sin, that's the idea, right? So it's not that your pastor is on a pedestal to actually teach you how to be, like I figured it out. I thought about it a lot this week and I've learned how to be a better Christian. And now I'm gonna bring you in, I'm enlightened and I'm gonna bring you into this better, higher way of living to live apart from sin. And that's the trap that often churches fall into because they forget the symbol. They have the thought that the person sitting there in the pew as a, I'm all in Christian and the sinful flesh is gone and now just teach me how to be better. Problem is, the sinner is still sitting in the same seat. And so at any given moment, the text is coming to us. And all of you are at different places. Um, I got some quotes from the confessions later. Maybe I'll, well, I'll, I'll come back to it. But it's like, sometimes you'll have, con- you'll have consciences that are terrified because of their sin, uh, because of, for, for whatever reason, just like this this doubt for, of God's love for them because everything, if you notice like, there's a, there's, a, there's a song by a terrible country singer. It's not even a country song. And she's pushing all these agendas. Follow your, she sings that song, follow your arrow or wherever it flies. Or what's that, what's that lady? Tr- Musgraves, Musgraves. Beautiful song. But she sings this song, Rainbow. That the, uh, when it rains, it pours. Is that not true? Think about your life. It's like you can handle, it's, it's, not, it's not easy when like your wife's sick or your, your, one of your parents is sick. But inevitably, your parents get sick and you lose your job and your kids are going down a bad path. It's like, and or you, then, then mom dies. Or you say you die? Oh, the dog dies. That's a country song. That's going down a different road. <laughs> well, so there's this, there's this sense in our sinful flesh where we can actually start wondering, doubting God's love for us and then despairing over, if God doesn't love me, why is he allowing these things to happen? Or a fear that um, maybe I'm not of his elect. And what happens if I, if I do die? And am I, going to, if I, am I going to enjoy heaven because my life sure doesn't look like? Terrified conscience because of that. Uh, fear of death, fear of death for our loved ones, worry, anxiety, despair. At any moment, everyone's facing the same problem, sin, but you're facing it in different ways, depending on what's going on in your personal life and where the Lord has placed you in your vocation, right? Which is why 
we lean on the, on the scripture text to say, okay, today I know there are some of you whose like family is dying and like you probably need to hear a different sermon than one on vocation in the body of Christ. And yet that's what I was given to do because at the same time, we need to hear about vocation and life in the body of Christ. So I went that route knowing that, yeah, I can't do everything in one clip, but I've got these sinners here at different places and the Lord has a word for them. And this is where we get to the point of the sermon. <laughs> uh, God's got his word that he's using to accomplish something. He is doing something. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He accomplishes that which he sends it to do. So when you think about God's word as it is doing something to you, it changes it, changes it from the head, right, to the heart. So now it's like, it's not just data that I'm trying to do to learn. I didn't come to church to learn more about Jesus. That's usually, that was the answer I thought some of you would give me. I come to church to learn more about Jesus, which is not bad, but it's not the goal of the sermon. That's what we're trying to teach you more about Jesus. I'm trying to kill you. Walking to Bethany. <laughs> but, but, so the Lord's trying to kill the old Adam by both raising the bar like Jesus would do, showing us despair for our sin, the consequences of sin, and, and cutting off any way out of our own sinful flesh that always wants to climb up the ladder by himself or take or have hope and comfort in other stuff uh, and finally tear down all the idols and drive us back to Jesus. Who forgives us? And it happens time after time in a variety of different ways. So when you look at the handout here, there's a the box in the middle. It's like, I give you two handouts. I'm not going to get halfway through one, half of one. Uh, we are fully justified before God, yet remain in our sinful flesh. So there is an ongoing tension. God speaks into the tension through his word of law and gospel to turn the old Adam away from sin or idols or a trust in ourself and bring to life the new Adam of faith. That is the life of the Christian who desires to love our neighbor, to live the Christian life, to be a better wife, husband, child, whatever, all in our vocations. That, but that desire comes, get this, the, 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 des, the desire to love my neighbor, let me think about it. Just because I do something nice for my neighbor outwardly, have I kept the law? No, Jesus made that point all the time. It's, he's getting at the heart. So I can, I can do stuff outwardly, but if the heart's not in it, then it's still sinful. So Jesus is, what he's after in the preaching of the sermon is to kill the old Adam, hit the heart, and bring about in the heart a love for the neighbor. So now a sincere love for the spouse, the parent, the, the community, the neighbor, right? Uh, and that's all ongoing for the Christian life. And it never ends because we're always falling back. Plus, Professor Pless in the seminary used to say, uh, baptism drowns the old Adam, Confession drowns the old Adam, but he's a good swimmer. <laughs> so he keeps bubbling back up. So we, we drown in confession. As we begin the service with holy confession, we do it from the font because that's the life of the baptized Christian. I'm baptized into Christ, and as a baptized body of Christ, I still am in my sin. And so I return to my baptism to have my old Adam drowned again. 
as we confess, I'm sinful. And I, what I do and what I don't do, what I am, all, everything about me, I'm sinful. And then we hear the absolution, to bring to life the new man, right? Uh, and that's just ongoing in the Christian life. So taking into account our condition, oh, let me, I skipped one, the yellow line. How does preaching play a role in this? What is our Lord doing to us in his word? So that's, that's this primary goal of the sermon is to, to slay the old Adam, to kill the old the old sinful self, and to bring to life the new man, which is happening not merely intellectually. No, it certainly needs to engage the brain because it's like if I stood up there and just spoke in German, this, by the way, is why St. Paul's going off against tongues, speaking in tongues. In 1 Corinthians, it's actually, uh, it's brilliant. I think it's next week's epistle lesson. It goes from like 1 Corinthians 12 is today's epistle, talking about the body of Christ. We all have our place to play within the body. We're not all apostles and teachers and miracles, healing, all this. Not all speak in tongues. The problem is in Paul's context, everybody's trying to speak in tongues at the same time and nobody understands anything. And so he's saying that all this, if you have all these gifts and can do all these things, but have not love, I am a Noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's the starting point of the text for like every wedding you've been to ever. But it, makes, it misses the whole context of what comes before it. So the noisy gong and clanging cymbal is that if we're all, if, if, if we're not, if we're all trying to do everything in the context of, of Paul and 1 Corinthians, the word itself isn't being heard. And it's just, it's just more pandemonium and craziness in the church. Love is actually driving us to hear God's word rightly. Uh, Yes. A couple of years ago, you had distributed a book. You talked about spirituality and the cross, that little purple book. And in that book, there was a section, and it reminds me of what you're talking about now, where it talks about our expectations for church. What is it we expect from church or from religion? And he talks about how many Christians, and other non-Christians too, expect some kind of mystical moment or a magical, like a transformative moment, an epiphany. I've met Christians who say they've had those experiences, and I don't question that, but I, I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that somehow coming to church is going to bring some magical transformative moment like that, rather than the ongoing struggle that right. you're talking about, that the bar always gets raised, you never quite get there. Good. Yeah, so the, one of the errors of, of the expectation of some kind of a mystic emo or emotional experience, where I'm like, I'm dependent on some sort of a feeling as a guarantee that God is working in me. That's not to say experiences don't happen. And, and, and to be sure, like, it's when I think when people are at their absolute worst and when they're, and they're really feeling the, the bare, when they really feel their sin um, or are confronted with death and then also are confronted with the full impact of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection unto life everlasting, it'll make you cry. But you don't always feel that way. Whether you feel it or not, the Lord is working on you. And that's the point. So we don't want to be dependent upon that mystical inner experience, but it's not bad, right? So sometimes you actually can get hit in such a way where it's like, for me, it's, it's like, it's funerals. I mean, the, the, the hymn, hymns are always better preacher than the sermon. So if you don't like this, listen to the hymns. The hymns preach this wonderful confession of what the gospel is. And it's hard to get through some of those hymns. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. We try to sing all, it's like, ah. Oh. 
To Abram's bosom, bear me home that I may die unfearing. And in thy narrow chamber, keep my body safe and peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. And then from death, awaken me. These mine eyes with joy may see. Ah, and then you're singing that and you're thinking about grandma who's right, who's in the casket next to you. You can't help but have a mystical experience. But that's not always going to be, you're not always going to have that. You're not always going to have that experience. So, I mean, so our emotions are certainly impacted by the gospel and the, and the law. But that's, yeah, good. So we're not trying to manipulate the emotions. So just with uh, maybe five minutes left here. Some people like to text me their questions instead of just asking them. Uh, so real quick, with sermon, with sermon reports, uh, we're teaching the kids, all, say, with all this in mind of what's going on, the kids then come to church and they're in this, this pivotal point in their lives from playing, like I, I always play tic-tac-toe with my sister. And, you're like, and you kind of graduate from crayons and Cheerios. And like, then it's like, okay, just stop hitting your brother. And then get off your phone or whatever is, and then all of a sudden, okay, now you're in confirmation. Start listening. Okay, what am I listening for? It's, it, it helps if you're, listening for, if you're listening for something. So what we try to do with the kids is instead of just listen to the sermon, we're saying listen to the sermon and try to find, like if I was to say to them, and I used to pick uh, with the acolytes, and the acolytes used to sit next to us, when, when those who are least likely to die from a disease <laughs> would be close. Anyway, I would I'd lean over and say, Hey, can you count for me how many times I say the word Jesus? I'm just worried I'm not saying it enough. And then I'd come back and then they'd, they'd, lean, they'd lean over. I forget I'd ask them that because I didn't care. But why'd I, why'd I ask them? Because they listen. Uh, so, so they'd tell me and I'm all excited. You said 13, 13 times. All right, thanks. So when you're listening for something, it makes it easier to actually pay attention. So for the kids, you're like, okay, what the pastor is trying to do is reveal to you the law that's in, that's in the scriptures of that day in some way, reveal the, preach the law to expose the sinful flesh in some way, and then also the gospel, which is God's solution for that problem. And it's going to be unique to that day. And if you look on your handout, that's simply how we ask them to do. Half of my time grading these things is figuring out what the kids are writing because their handwriting is terrible. <laughs> uh, it's like, so we ask for like one or two sentences on what is the law in the sermon? What is the gospel in the sermon? What's the, what's the general theme of the sermon? To this day, since there's no confirmands in here, I've yet to, I've yet to every paper, ex, exclamation, great, great job, exclamation point. By the way, this isn't law at all. <laughs> uh, this is gospel. And then I point them to the back where I've got, you can use this as your own handy resource, a bunch of Bible verses, statements about what the law does, and what the gospel does. So for those of you who have kids in confirmation still, you're helping guide them through. The law is trying to say, so you can read these sentences. And in the law, they'll say something like, uh, Jesus died for all my sins. That's not the law. That's the solution to the problem. So the sin, what, what is the cause of my need for forgiveness? So what I usually tell the, the kids always usually nail the gospel. Jesus is with me, forgives all my sins. He died on the cross for me. All this stuff about Jesus and what he has done for us. Good. So if you find the gospel, that's like saying uh, you see somebody with, an, with a cast on their arm. 
You've seen the solution. But if, if I've got a cast on my arm, is it is the problem that I've got a broken leg? No, I've got a broken arm. So if you can find the solution, you can also back your way, what's the law, right? If you're trying to play a little intellectual game as you're listening to sermons. But that's still getting on to the mind, like you're trying to figure it out. But yet, the soul is also impacted through the mind. We go through the ear into the mind and then to the heart. So in the same way that, like in, in marriage counseling, you can say to somebody, hey, like in a marriage, the husband and the wife, they love each other, but they're having trouble communicating it clearly to each other. So they go through like, okay, when he does this, why do you do this thing? And they kind of walk through it and he's doing a certain thing to show love and she's just kind of missing the point. So you can actually intellectually walk through something so that they can understand what love looks like. And that's all helpful and good. And that's why we do, we don't shy away from the academic side of things, teaching the kids in confirmation, what is the law? What is the gospel, right? So we're, we're, at, we're certainly engaging our brains. We're not, we're not just sitting there as, as empty sponges. And yet at the same time, in spite of our brains, God is working on us. God's bringing his law and gospel, just as he does in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. The word is preached and it brings forth life. It kills the old Adam and brings to, brings to life the new man. Now here's a quick quote from uh, the formula of Concord. As the distinction between the law and the gospel is a special, brilliant light, which serves to the end that God's word may be rightly divided and the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles may be properly explained and understood. We must guard it with especial care in order that these two doctrines may not be mingled with one another or a law be made out of the gospel, whereby the merit of Christ is obscured and the troubled consciences are robbed of their comfort, which they otherwise have in the holy gospel when it is preached genuinely and in its purity and by which they can support themselves in their most grievous trials against the terrors of the law. So uh, there's a way that the gospel and the law can be mingled. And like, for me, it's like, if you're, if you're grading your kids' sermon reports, you know, look at, we don't want to ever add an if, I call it an if bomb, because I'm so witty. You don't want to add, a, add an if to the gospel. Like some of these kids will write, um, so the, the joys of heaven are ours if we repent. So what they've done is they've taken, and this is helpful because what they've done for me is that they've told me that I said something unclear in the sermon. So I need to be more clear next time. So you never add an if. If salvation is up to if you, then what have I done? I've taken all the joys of the cross and I've put it, I've rested it firmly on who's doing? You. So the if undoes the gospel and mingles it. So we want to always preach the law fully and, and, and take away any opportunity for the Christian to, to ever get out. There's no way out. There's no way to save myself. And then fully lavish the love of God upon the sinner. And that happens uh, to us past our brains, but it's going after the soul and using the text to do it. So I, I, did, I didn't know how how long is it going to take me to get to today? So on the back of that handout, at the bottom, there's a few Bible verses on like why we, why we categorize the scriptures as law and gospel because the scriptures do. The scriptures themselves say the law shows us our sin and so forth. The, 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 the scriptures talk all the time about preaching the gospel. But then on the back, 
ways to notice the law's presence or to notice the gospel and the impact, the overall impact of God's word upon us. So uh, take that, if you, if you get a chance this afternoon or something, read, read through that as, a, as just a reminder of what is happening in law and gospel. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, to this day I do this. Talk to my in-laws because I think it might annoy them. When I'm, when I'm at church with, with them, and I'm trying to pay attention to someone else's sermon. It helps to actually listen for the law, listen for the gospel, write it down on your, those little short pencils that are always broken in the pews. Uh, drive a pencil that works and just make some notes in your bulletin. It helps you stay awake. It helps you focus. And what happens is you're engaging the simul. It's so like, I'm, as I'm thinking about the law, it's actually hitting you. Uh, and, and the Lord's doing his thing on you in spite of, in spite of yourself. So any, um, any qu- quick questions on that? We got a few minutes left. Yes, Ina? I have a few, but I'll email you. I don't text them. Email me. Okay. All right. Well, yes, right. Send me. Yeah, if you have... Sometimes you do that. People will text me like during the sermon because they were at early service and they're on their way home or something and they'll text me and my watch goes off during the sermon. I'm always like, it's like an itch you got to scratch. I'm trying to preach. I'm like, why would you text me? Uh, if you would, on your way out, uh, take the blue handouts and just stack them up on that table and they'll work their way back to the sanctuary. Thank you. The Lord be with you.